Omicron. The new variant no one wanted to welcome into this world now has a name. The WHO have just called. That's going to take up quite a lot of tonight's show. I speak to an expert on quite how worried we should be. We are going to start the show, though, with a discussion of the politics of the English Channel and a flame war which is currently taking place between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron. We're going to end the show with something much lighter, which is probably the most ridiculous speech given in Parliament this year. Let's get going. This Wednesday, 17 men, seven women and three children died after their boat capsized in the channel. It's understood most were from Iran and Iraq. All were looking for a better life. Among large swathes of the public, the tragedy is a reminder of the human cost of how Britain polices its borders. In contrast, for our leaders, it served as an opportunity to score political points. Last night, Boris Johnson tweeted an open letter to the French President Emmanuel Macron on how he believed Britain and France could work together to stop people trying to cross the channel. The letter called for a number of new measures including joint patrols by British and French authorities in each other's waters, reciprocal surveillance of the coast, including by drone, and most notably, a request for UK border force to be able to patrol the French coast. That's on land in this case, so particularly controversial. Emmanuel Macron, for his part, did not respond well. He said this about the manner in which Johnson sent his letter. Je suis surpris des méthodes quand elles ne sont pas... I'm surprised when things are not done seriously. We don't communicate between leaders on these issues via tweets or published letters. We are not whistleblowers. Come on. The ministers will work seriously to settle a serious issue with serious people. That was Macron complaining that diplomacy shouldn't be conducted by tweet. A government spokesperson also dismissed the content of the letter, telling French TV... The letter is mediocre because it does not respect all the work that has been done by our Coast Guard, police, gendarmerie and lifeboat crews. It basically proposes a relocation agreement, which is clearly not what's needed to solve this problem. We're sick and tired of this double talk and outsourcing of problems. What we need is for the British to send immigration officers to France to examine here on French territory demands for asylum in Britain. In response to the letter and the manner in which it was sent, the French have disinvited Priti Patel from a meeting due to take place on Sunday between European interior ministers on the situation on the French-UK border. All this means that thanks to two giant egos and no doubt electoral opportunism, a humanitarian crisis has become a diplomatic spat. Seeking to downplay the row, Transport Secretary Grant Schapp sounded conciliatory this morning. Quite simply, no nation can tackle this alone. And so I, I hope that the French will uh, reconsider. It's in our interests, it's in their interests, it's certainly in the interests of people who are being people trafficked to the UK and these tragic scenes we're seeing, people losing their lives. We absolutely need to work um, together on it. And I think that's the, the, the right But you're not going to be in the room, so, are you? You're not gonna, well, the UK is not in the room this weekend at this crucial meeting. Well, let, let's see. Let's see what happens. As, as I say, you know, friends and neighbours need to work together. There's no other way to address the the problem apart from working closely. But the together. French have said you're not see... invited. The French have said well, the I... Home Secretary Priti Patel is no longer invited. As I say, I, I, I hope that that isn't the end and state of it. Because uh, how can we resolve these problems if we do not work together? That was Grant Shapps trying to downplay the significance of the disinvitation. In contrast, Labour's Nick Thomas-Simmons called Priti Patel's disinvitation a humiliation. Well, this is a humiliation for a Prime Minister and a Home Secretary who've completely lost control of the situation in the Channel at the very moment when the Prime Minister needed to be a statesman to actually deal with this. What we saw instead was a grave error of judgment in putting a public letter on Twitter where he was trying to seek international cooperation and it's ended up within a matter of hours with our government be, being excluded from these vital talks that need to take place to prevent people from risking their lives in the channel. Of course, what the spats between Macron and Johnson and Labour and the Tories overlook is the humanitarian catastrophe that is still playing out on the French side of the channel.
On that front, Lewis Goodall made a, a really good film, actually, for Wednesday's edition of Newsnight. Here he is in Dunkirk. Even poli police, uh, French police, taking all our items belongs to us. They have destroyed all our tents, sleeping base, and foods, water. From our pers perspectives, yeah, from your viewpoints, France is a safe country, but, but actually it's not. Though most wouldn't speak on camera, this was a refrain we heard again and again. When we asked why people weren't claiming asylum in France, some said family in Britain, historic ties between their countries and Britain, language, but many cited how they had been treated by the French government and their belief that Britain would be more humane. This man, we're not naming, is only 20 years old and says he wants to get to Britain because it's where his last family connections in the world remain. And where do you come from? I come from Iran. Uh, Kurdistan, Iran. Kurdistan, Iran? Yes. And why did you leave? What was the yeah, reason? The politician, you know, uh, is uh, uh, the government of Iran, you know, uh, killed Kurdish people, uh, hang them, kill them. Yeah, they, they put uh, us uh, on a jail with the, no reason, you know. What did they do? What did they say to you? They said to me, uh, you must leave the, this country or it will kill you. That's all. And uh, my, my dad is now in the jail, you know. Uh, it's been one month, I don't know what happened to him. Aaron, this spat all seems pretty undignified given the human cost of what is currently going on on the French-UK border. Oh, what do you make of the political response since the tragedy on Wednesday? I think it's a slightly strange way to look at things. I think it's an important question to ask, Michael, because that's obviously the main story. It was catalyzed by Boris Johnson tweeting a letter. But seeing the Labour Shadow Home Secretary talk about looking statesmanlike and appearances and rhetoric and looking the part, and I'm thinking, well, the real problem here is the substance. No, the real problem here is the fact that we have 7,000 miles of coast. Who seriously thinks we can enforce a policing of that, of that border? 7,000 miles of coast. Who seriously believes we can do that? Which British politician is going to have the balls, apart from Jeremy Corbyn, to say that right now Britain is home to about, I think, 130,000 refugees. France is home to about 430,000 refugees. So, yeah, okay, talking about the SPAC is important, but I think the fact it's been reduced to that so quickly tells you so much about the triviality of British politics, Michael. The best part of 30 people have died. This hasn't come out of the blue, by the way. In the summer, a 15-year-old Iranian boy called Artin died. He, he died in the English Channel. His body was found in Norway. But we've become so desensitized to these things that we don't think that's a little bit strange, that a child's corpse is washed up in Scandinavia as he tried along with the rest of his family. I think all of them died but one parent trying to come to England. And immediately, the debate moves on to optics and statesmanlike, and my goodness. And, and for me, it, it, it does really personify the extent to which British politics, legacy media, are almost incapable of engaging with issues in an important way, which was what was so refreshing about Lewis Goodall's piece for Newsnight. I, I, I love Lewis Goodall's work, and I think actually it is so conspicuous at the BBC because it's good and because it's professional. There's so little of that. That's exactly, you know, I like Lewis, but that's how all broadcast journalism should be. Why are they here? What are the deeper lying reasons? What would be a potential solution? Those should be the operating questions that all of his colleagues and all people in the industry are asking. That's very rarely the case, however. Let's talk about the, the policies that are being proposed by both sides. So as I, as I said at the start in Boris Johnson's letter, he's talking about joint patrols um, by the British and French authorities. Um, so that's in each other's waters. He's also saying UK border force should be given access to operate in France, essentially, to stop people taking off from these from these beaches. As Aaron said, there is kilometers of beach which people are taking off from. So it, it seems completely implausible to me. We can go to the French position now. So this is Macron speaking at a press conference in Rome. Today, France is, for these women and men leaving misery or suffering in their countries and seeking to join the British territory, we're what's called a place of transit. They don't want to stay in France. They want to cross over at all costs. The real answer is therefore serious cooperation to prevent these actions, to dismantle these trafficking networks and to prevent these women and men from arriving on our soil, because it is already too late when they're there. 
a slightly confusing intervention, I thought, from Macron, because on the one hand, you know, he starts by saying that people are in France trying to get to Britain only because they want to get to Britain. Seems like he's sort of saying this isn't France's responsibility to deal with this. They want to get to Britain. We're, you know, we're just we're just a transitory location. Stop trying to, to outsource your problems here. At the same time, he seems to be suggesting some policy that would stop them coming to France in the first place. I, I don't know what, what that would be. And interestingly, also, the latter idea is, is a different emphasis to what a French government spokesperson said this morning. So we showed you um, this quote already. I just wanted to focus on one particular part of it. So Gabriel Tal said, what we need is for the British to send immigration officers to France to examine here on French territory demands for asylum in Britain. So, so on the one hand, you've got the French president saying, what we need to do is stop these migrants ever getting to France in the first place. And then you've also got a government spokesperson saying, well, look, ultimately, these people want to come to Britain. If you want to stop them crossing the channel, what you should do is send your home office bureaucrats to France, and then you can process people here, and you, and you can work out whether or not they have an asylum claim here. That's, that's the way that you stop them crossing the border. And obviously, Aaron's point that currently France has around uh, you know, a population of 400,000 refugees, whereas Britain only has a population of 130,000 refugees, that would very much justify that position. Obviously, it's talked about as a problem in a, in a policy sense. I don't think it's a problem. I think our society is dramatically enriched by people from different countries and, and refugees. But that's obviously not the frame in which this, this conversation is taking place. Aaron, what do you understand as like Macron's position? What did, what did you think he wanted there from that clip? So hard to say, Michael, because on the one hand, I think he is, I think the French are generally speaking a lot more sense than the British. I don't know if you want to talk about this more, but you know, some of the contents of Johnson's, of Johnson's letter I just find absolutely outlandish, but I'll, I'll let you maybe push back on that if you want in a second. The big thing with the French, of course, is they have their presidential election in April next year, in 2022. And Macron is by far and away the favourite to win that right now. If I had to sort of bet, I would say Macron. In polls, repeatedly, he's about four, five, six points ahead of Marine Le Pen, who is second, who right now seems to be the person who'd go into a presidential runoff against Macron. If it's not her, don't get too happy because it's looking like it would be a figure called Zemmour instead, who's also from the radical right in France, the far right. So th there's also a domestic political calculation here, Michael, which is to say Macron can't look soft on the Brits. The British have left the European Union. They can no longer appeal to the Dublin Treaty. They can no longer say that displaced peoples entering the European Union have to seek their, their right to remain in the first country they go to. They, they can't appeal to that because well, we can't appeal to that because we're no longer in the EU. What the French electorate rightly sees is a country that wants to leave the European Union, is a country that doesn't want to participate in any sort of egalitarian sharing of displaced peoples coming in to Europe, including Britain and instead wants to have its cake and eat it. And the proposal from Boris Johnson is that anybody that comes to the UK via France with these dinghies is immediately sent back and processed by the French. That is outrageous. And Macron, and I think anybody in French politics knows, if Macron conceded to that, there's a, there's a significantly increased possibility of Marine Le Pen becoming the next president of the French Republic. It would be an utter capitulation on the most salient political topic that will be central to French politics over the next four, five, six months. So the French shouldn't do it out of a sense of what's appropriate, but it would also be political suicide for, for Emmanuel Macron. And this kind of way of doing negotiations by the British is just, it's just bizarre. It resembles, and we see it time and time again, sort of 19th century gunboat diplomacy. We, we can't behave like that. I mean, we, can't, we certainly can't behave like that with any, with any credibility. So yes, Macron is a little bit all over the place, but like I say, I think that's somewhat to allay domestic political concerns, because unlike here, for now, although some people might think Boris Johnson's in the far right, I don't, the possibility of a far right president is looming increasingly large. So I get Macron's actions, certainly a lot more than Boris Johnson's. I think we completely agree that all of the suggestions that Boris Johnson have made are completely impractical, either, you know, France are never going to accept them, or they're going to be completely ineffective because, as you said, there's 50 kilometers of, of coast that people can leave from even if you, you know, let a few hundred border force into France. That's not going to stop people taking off on boats, which means that, I mean, the two policy options that remain are safe passage, which is obviously the humane thing to do. That would be the right thing to do, but I can't really imagine any British politician at the moment offering it or some sort of status quo situation 
or the Pretty Patel suggestion, which is that you you say if people have arrived illegally, obviously th- these this thing doesn't really stack up in terms of international law, but I think you know potentially they'll try and find some way to to work around that. Then they will automatically be refused asylum, or at the more extreme end, anyone who is intercepted in the channel in British waters, they can send to some sort of third place, which is sort of the, the Australian method. Only one of those is humane, which is the safe passage one. Aaron, I don't know which one of those you think is most likely to happen. I suppose probably a betting person would say the status quo will just continue as we we have been continuing because that's normally a safe bet when yeah. it comes to these things. Well, the Tories have gone big on cutting immigration for 11 years and it only goes up and up and up. And of course, immigration can mean immigration within the European Union or outside the European Union, or this is not immigration per se, this is dealing with displaced peoples. I don't like the binary really between economic immigration and seeking asylum. I think often the two things can converge. I think many Iranians, by the way, coming to Europe and coming to the UK, they may be fleeing uh, persecution or intolerance or a lack of civil liberties. But my God, one thing we could do today, which would make their lives a lot easier, would be to end sanctions. And again, this is something which isn't going said in the, in the wider debate, Michael. We see every politician talk about people traffickers. It's not really people traffickers. People coming from Syria, Syria, from Libya, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, want to come here for a range of reasons. It's no surprise, although Nick Ferrari yesterday on LBC was just gazumped by the possibility of it. The countries involved here, like I say, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, these have either been bombed, invaded and occupied, or subject to sanctions by the Western powers over the last 20 years. But if you even talk about that causality, you're, you hate Britain, you're not serious, uh, you're, you're politically naive, or you're just talking nonsense. And sadly, as long as that idiotic approach to this debate is maintained, and it will be because you know the right-wing press control legacy media, the former editor of The, the Spectator is literally in number 10 Downing Street, we are going nowhere on this debate substantively in terms of effective policy solutions. We're going nowhere. So I think you're right, Michael, that the status quo will endure. It'll just look more ugly, more aggressive, and more dysfunctional. And the Tories, despite all that, will blame other people. I think that point about why people are traveling is obviously incredibly notable where these people are from. It's not a coincidence, as you say, there are places that Britain has bombed or has sanctions on. Also, I do want to just pick up on, on the point you made about trafficking, because I do think this is the one that is the most childish and just ridiculous talking point that every single commentator, every single politician in Britain agrees that the real problem here is the trafficking gangs that we have to break up because these are horrible organs for the exploitation of desperate people. Yes, I assume that people who run trafficking gangs, you know, aren't the most sort of ethical of of operators. I'm sure they're doing it for the money and they don't really care that much about humanitarian needs of anyone involved. But the reason people are paying the trafficking gangs is because they want to get to Britain. And I don't think they're being tricked, right? So what is notable of people who have been reporting in Dunkirk and Cali over the last couple of days is even after these 27 people tragically passed away, that hasn't been a moment where everyone who still wants to get to Britain goes, oh, we've been conned. We've been conned. We were told this was incredibly safe. Now we'll just go back to where we're from. We won't part money to to these terrible traffickers. No, everyone there knows the situation they know that what they're doing is incredibly dangerous, but they think it's worth it because they want to get to Britain because they want to start a better life. So this idea that the trafficking gangs are anything other than filling a demand is just so childish, yet everyone has to pretend that that's a legitimate, sensible response to what we're currently seeing. I mean, I have a good example of this, which is growing up, I had you know Iranian or British Iranian friends, and you obviously hear many stories of this, people fleeing the revolution or whatever. And one family was Baha'i, and Baha'is are subject to significant sort of religious persecution in Iran, in a, in a way that other minorities generally aren't. Formally speaking, constitutionally speaking, Christians and Jews have certain civil liberties that you just don't get with Baha'is because they don't acknowledge that Muhammad is the final prophet, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, they're not people of the book, as mm-hmm. they'd be called in, in Iran. So they are subject to real religious persecution. And uh, somebody I knew, their mother fled Iran by foot. And not, they weren't living in northern Iran. This is a person who effectively walked, I think, from... It was a major Iranian city, and it wasn't in the north. Her husband was from the south. Her husband was from Abadan. And they walked by foot through Cappadocia, I think 
most of the way through Turkey because she wanted a better life for her children. She had, she had two sons. Do you think that's because of traffickers? Do you think they were misled? They're fleeing religious persecution. They have family and friends in Britain. They speak English. Why? Because we had an empire for 200 years. We decided to conquer, you know, 25% of the planet. I'm not just sort of raising that willy-nilly. That's literally why many of these people come here. They can't speak French. They can't speak German. Many, many different nationalities reside in the UK because we were this imperial power. And they speak the language of the mother country. So they went to Britain. There's a, there's a clear incentive as to as to why, that was nothing to do with people traffickers. And I, I think every single politician who starts this conversation with people traffickers, you just don't take them seriously. Because it means immediately, it's like a signal going off. It's like the bat signal. Don't take me seriously when it comes to displaced peoples and questions of asylum and, and what our wars of occupation and sanctions and economic imperialism have done for 30, 40 years to these countries. If Western foreign policy in the early 21st century had consciously aimed creating failed states, it probably wouldn't have done as good a job as it has in Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan. Even if they had tried to spend trillions of dollars in creating failed states, they still wouldn't have ended with a situation this favorable to that objective. I'm not even talking about Yemen. You know, Yemen, you have huge numbers of displaced peoples, and that's a war being prosecuted by the Saudis with sign-off from the British and the Americans. And yet when you get displaced people, hundreds of thousands, millions of people coming from Central and West Asia, oh, or North Africa in the case of Libya, oh, where have they come from? So maybe the thing we always hear from politicians in the UK and the USA, rules-based global system, maybe that would be a good idea. But instead what we do is destroy and disintegrate civil society in these countries in the name of short-term political interest and profit. It doesn't work. And, and, and I feel like, like I say, any politician who won't start the conversation with that and instead talks about traffickers, you know what? I, I'd sooner talk to Ronald McDonald about how to deal with displaced peoples in Europe in the 21st century. They're going to talk more, more sense than Keir Starmer or the Labour Shadow Home Secretary or Boris Johnson or Priti Patel. It's a bit like saying what we need to do is go after the dinghy manufacturers, isn't it? Like, the, the problem is the people who are making these dinghies, which migrants can use to cross the channel. That, that's not the problem. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. The Boris Johnson, even in the letter, you know, he talks about we've got to destroy, I think you mentioned this earlier, maybe you didn't. I, I, you know, it struck me with such force, this phrase, that it's now sort of imprinted in my brain. We've got to stop the business model of the traffickers. If they haven't got a business model, this won't happen. I mean, wow, A, these people have just internalized sort of neoliberal baloney, or which changed the incentives and the people won't come. The incentives are, I no longer want to live in a country which is on the brink of collapse. I no longer want to face religious or political or, 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 or persecution on the base of my you know, sexual preference. I want to go somewhere I can possibly live a decent life. You, know, you don't need traffickers in that equation. Quite obvious. Again, these are points which I think are comprehensible and readily understood and agreed on by just everyday, ordinary people who engage their brains but it's unsayable if you're in SW1, Westminster, if you're in the political elite, if you go to the Spectator the Summer Garden Party, or if you're Keir Starmer's inner circle trying to impress the powers that be about how prime ministerial you look. By necessity, you can't talk about things which make sense because they live in this little fabricated media political bubble We don't actually talk about the reasons why things happen and what we could actually do to change them. I would maybe put, I think the business model point actually slightly makes sense because it's, it's the moralizing that I think makes no sense because the business model one, that's basically just an illusion by Boris Johnson to say, if we could automatically send people back to France the moment they landed on the shore, then people wouldn't bother paying that money to get to Britain because they know that it, it was fruitless. I mean, it's what the Australians did, isn't it? When they said, we're going to stop the boat people by automatically sending people to some third country and saying, if you've done this route, you can never have Australian citizenship. And that does... No, I just don't believe that because people... Pe the reason why people are using dinghies is because we clamp down on people getting in the back of lorries and, and coming via Calais. That's what's happened. People are little innovate. Yeah, the numbers would be far lower, but tens of thousands of people every year by the looks of it. I mean, this year in particular, Michael, I think anybody that's talking with that kind of certainty, and, it, and it's important to say, you know, I saw Peter Dukes on Twitter saying, how could we be so terrible when we're talking about dozens of people trying to come to the UK? We're not talking about dozens, okay? If we want to be serious about the political issue, this year is a record. Right now, we're looking at about thirty to 40,000 people okay, a year, well up on last year. 
I think in that context, when something has so drastically increased, and I take your point on Australia, Michael, but when it's so drastically increased so quickly, the idea that you can stop it just through some tweaks, I, I do not buy that. And it also works on the assumption that the people coming here are working on perfect information. Uh, you would probably need a quite visible expression of how that system works, like inhumane detention centers in you know, the Falkland Islands. Yes, then maybe. That's going to take a couple of years. You know, that's not going to work overnight. And that's what, that's, that's what they did in Australia. That was their, their response to it there. Let's go on to our next story. Flights have been banned from six southern African countries after a new variant was discovered which appears to be more transmissible than Delta and which has mutations that suggest it could evade immunity. The variant was officially called B11529, but the WHO have just christened it with the Greek letter Omicron. On Friday morning, Sajid Javid gave this update to Parliament. We are concerned that this new variant may pose substantial risk to public health. The variant has an unusually large number of mutations. It shares many of the features of Alpha, Beta and Delta variants. Early indications show this variant may be more transmissible than the Delta variant and current vaccines may be less effective against it. It may also impact the effectiveness of one of our major treatments, Ronoprev. Sajid Javid there said the new variant may be more transmissible and may evade immunity. Scientists have, of course, been keen to stress, stress that given how recently Omicron was discovered, lots is still unknown. It was only discovered on, only identified on Tuesday. However, it is clear why the variant is already causing significant concern. On the transmissibility of Omicron, these graphs from John Byrne Murdoch at the Financial Times show how quickly it has been spreading. So as you can see here, it took 75 days before Delta made up 80% of all new COVID cases in South Africa. But this new variant got there in just 20 days. So after 20 days, it is 90% of all new COVID cases in South Africa. So you can see that it is, is out-competing um, the, the existing variants at a much faster pace than Delta did. It is important to note this growth is from a low base, though. Um, as you can see here, COVID cases have been very low of late in South Africa. So the dr dramatic relative increase in cases of the Omicron variant could be because there isn't much Delta to compete with. When Delta first came on the scene, there were still significant levels of beta in South Africa. So it could make sense that the reason it looks so dramatic is because there wasn't, wasn't that much Delta to compete with in the first place. In any case, though, the growth rate is undeniably very worrying. It's increasing very quickly. So on Tuesday, in South Africa, there were 868 COVID cases. On Wednesday, 1,275. And on Thursday, 2,465. So that is a very, very fast doubling time. The second worrying thing about Omicron is the potential it can evade vaccines. The concern here is due to the number of mutations on the spike protein, which means it could potentially disguise itself from our existing antibodies. The context in which it has spread has also um, suggested immune evasion might be taking place. A government source told The Times, South Africa has had some big waves and should have a high level of immunity. The fact that it's spreading rapidly in a place that you'd think would be reasonably well protected gives us cause for concern. So how worried should we be about the Omicron variant of coronavirus? I spoke earlier to Professor Dean and Pillay. Um, I think we, our worry level should probably be at, um, at this moment in time, 7 out of 10. Uh, to be to be honest, uh, of course, there's huge uncertainty, um, and we don't want to overplay it. Uh, and of course, we still think that vaccines will, to some extent, limit the illness that this variant causes. But we don't know that; it's speculation. And so, worried, yes, but a despondent, no. What lots of people will be reading with great concern is that the, the multiple mutations in this variant mean that it could escape immunity, whether that's natural immunity by having had the infection or whether that's with the vaccine. As far as I understand it, no one's really suggesting this could make vaccines useless, are they? They're just saying that this could make vaccines less effective 
Uh, that's right, Michael. It, these collection of mutations has been looked at in the past, but certainly not a constellation of mutations all in the same virus, do suggest that this virus has the potential to escape or partially escape control by antibodies and immunity generated by vaccines. Of course, we've got to remember that we saw this similarly in the Delta virus that could spread further. And yet we still know that the vaccines are quite effective against that, certainly in terms of pre preventing disease. So I'm hopeful that vaccines will still be a key part of control of this particular variant. The worry is that the virus has evolved to become more transmissible than the Delta virus, which itself is very transmissible. As we know, we have high levels of infection still within the UK because of that. And we know that vaccines don't necessarily prevent infection with the Delta virus, but they certainly do prevent, to a large extent, severe disease. So it may be something similar to that, which comes down then to the need for, of course, vaccines, together with all the other measures, which um, may be being lost at the moment, but we may need to bring them back in terms of mask wearing on public transport, ventilation, forcing people to isolate, all of those constellation of things that can help to keep the transmission down. From the initial charts that I've seen on Twitter, it doesn't just seem like this is more transmissible than Delta, which was already you know, disastrous for us all. It seems like it could be way, way, way more transmissible than, than Delta. The speed at which this has become the dominant strain in in South Africa seems to be quite remarkable. How much more transmissible do you think this is than Delta? And, and how soon will we know the answer to that question? The data from South Africa do show a rapid increase in this particular variant. But we've got to remember that it's against the backdrop, firstly, of low levels of transmission. At this moment in time, South Africa has pretty good control. But secondly, there has been an enhanced testing and surveillance of infections. So it may be that this is a sort of net result of that increased testing as well. But having said that, clearly worrying signs that this is transmitting widely within a population. We've got to remember as well that vaccination rates are pretty low in South Africa, maybe 30 to 40 percent of the population fully vaccinated. So there's a lot of susceptible individuals there who could become infected. So putting all of those things together, it does suggest it is very transmissible. But the degree to which that can compete, for instance, in the UK situation where there's still a lot of Delta circulating is unclear. And we really, this is where we, we need to sort of not speculate too much and just await the information that's coming from different countries where we know that this variant now exists. That was Dean and Pillay, member of Independent Sage and Professor of Virology at UCL. Let's move on to talk about the policy responses to Omicron. The UK government were very quick to ban travel from six southern African countries. The EU have now followed suit, although they've now banned it from seven. This, on the one hand, seems unfair. We can't be sure this variant emerged in South Africa. They could just be punished for having a good virus identification scheme and then being open about its findings. So that doesn't set a great precedent. If you are open and alert, that means the world could turn on you. At the same time, the last two years have shown that travel controls can be effective, especially at slowing down the arrival of new variants. I say slowing down because unless you block off all travel, a la Australia, New Zealand or, or China, it, it will get there eventually. Delaying it, though, would be useful because that would mean that we'd have ch a chance for the booster program to reach more people before Omicron arrives. That all means, as I say, I think short-term travel restrictions might be justified, even if on, on one level they do seem a bit unfair. The standout moral problem for me, though, is that if we are going to cordon off people for the greater good, we should give them a hell of a lot of support in return. They're basically taking one for the team. And when it comes to COVID, that hasn't happened. So these are the current levels of vaccination in the UK and the six countries that Britain has just banned, has just put on its red list. Here, this is people who have been double vaccinated as of November the 24th, and this is according to Our World in Data. In the UK, it's 68%. In South Africa, 
Only 24% in Botswana, 20% Zimbabwe, 18% in Namibia, 11%. The data from Lesotho and Eswatini is a little bit earlier. It's not quite as up to date, but they are 27% and 21% respectively. So as I say, I think travel restrictions can be justified in, in this period of time. But if you're blocking off a people, you say, oh, we're cordoning you off. Oh, and also, by the way, we're going to withhold the vaccines that could make having this incredibly difficult variant much more tolerable. Sorry, we've used those all ourselves. That's essentially what we're saying. Aaron, we only really learned about this this variant sort of yesterday, the last couple of days. How worried are you about the, the Omicron variant? I'm very worried, Michael, but not just about the Omicron variant. I think about just pandemics and pathogens more generally. I'm very worried and new pathogens. And it's something we've talked about for 18 months the, the sort of book that really shaped my thinking on this was Andreas Malm's book on coronavirus and war communism, where he just makes clear the threat of pandemics in the 21st century. And I do think as a society, you know, we're going to have to get used to this kind of elevated threat level with regards to biosecurity. We've had now three coronaviruses since the turn of the 21st century. We will obviously have a bunch of variants. We may have a terrible variant of COVID-19. This may be it. It likely won't be, we hope, touch wood. But there will be dangerous variants and there will be further pathogens. Why? Because of deforestation, climate change, the fact that we're encroaching ever further into the natural world. That permits the very fertile ground for what's called the zoonotic spillover, where a pathogen goes from one species to another. During the course of the 20th century, of course, we saw a great many instances of this. HIV AIDS, Ebola, and there'll be many more. And it will likely accelerate. So in a way, it's important that it's a background part of the conversation. People shouldn't just think, oh, we had COVID-19 in 2020, 2021, and it'll be like the flu pandemic in 1919. We don't need to worry about this stuff for another 100 years. In all likelihood, we'll see what East Asia's seen, like I say, since the turn of the 21st century. A big pandemic scare, maybe once every 10 years. And that's now a background noise, a background variable in a globalized society. And again, it makes a mockery of the kind of idea of national sovereignty and borders, because Pathogens don't respect borders. It'd be very easy if they did, but they don't. Of course, that doesn't mean you don't take concrete steps like stopping travel or unnecessary travel. It can be highly effective. We talked about that many, many times over the last 18 months, Michael. But I also do agree with you. It's very rare, or what we've seen so far anyway, with Britain, it's very rare that the countries which are subject to the sort of tightest restrictions are necessarily the ones which are maximizing the safety of UK nationals. We saw that with regards to the relative ease of travel between the UK and the United States and uh, UK and Italy last year. So it's politics. If you've got high tourism and you've got close geopolitical relations and you've got strong economic ties, I don't think you'll see the government acting as, as keenly as it, as it has with regards to sort of Botswana and Lesotho and South Africa. But yeah, very simple way of dealing with things is closing borders in a smart, uh, calibrated way. The priority here clearly should be let's distribute the vaccines. I mean, the thing we want by the time the next pandemic comes around is the ability not just to develop a, a vaccine quickly, which, you know, on a, on a historical scale we did do, but then to make sure that that gets to the whole world. Because, I mean, people have been saying for, for months that not only is it callous to not be donating enough vaccines to Africa, or actually, more importantly, not releasing the patents so that people can develop their own vaccines. It's, it's pretty notable that South Africa, one of the major countries who were really lobbying hard at the WTO for, for Pfizer to, to release the patents for their vaccines, that was denied to them. Now they have a, an under-vaccinated population and a variant has emerged there. That, that to me doesn't seem like a coincidence. I say actually, obviously, we don't know it's emerged there. We, we don't know where it was first identified there, but it would make sense that that's where it emerged. We, I mean, it seems at this point that the variants mainly emerge. Transmission between people matters, but it seems that it's more replication within one individual. So one individual who gets seriously ill and is fighting off the virus for, for a really long time. That seems to be where these where these, these variants come from. And it, that makes sense because there's so much replication in, in that one person. And I think if we vaccinate everyone, you get less serious illness, which means you get less variants. That's why we need to be vaccinating the world, as well as obviously, because it's you know completely callous not to, the longer we take to vaccinate the world, the more of these variants we, we are going to be generating. I suppose quickly, just in terms of what this means for this country, I have seen some people sort of on social media say, oh no, is it going to be another winter lockdown? 
I think probably not. I think it, it's possible that we will need sort of more greater restrictions, the sort of low cost ones, masks on, masks on trains. Please, can the government finally invest in some ventilation and do proper sick pay? But with the vaccines, I doubt this is going to be as serious a disease as it was last last winter. You know, even if we do have a wave of it, and hopefully we won't. Um, Aaron, are you stocking up for a, for a lockdown, or are you also fairly confident that we're not going to have something akin to last winter? <laughs> You know, we're, and we're obviously not going to have something akin to last winter because the first people being vaccinated, I believe, were early December, late November last year, which is remarkable when you think about how much has been achieved in one calendar year. 29% of the population over 12 has now had three doses, which is just phenomenal. No, but at the same time, you know, it's been quite a clement November or October. December doesn't really start until, uh, winter doesn't start until technically till December 21st, but let's just say December, January, February are the coldest months of the year. You know, we had 50,000 new cases today. It's kind of plateauing, just edging up. I would like to have seen more steps by the government to say, well, look, worst case scenario, forward planning, what would we be doing, say, in February uh, if there's a major issue or in January? I think for Christmas, I, I, I think it's extraordinarily unlikely, uh, not extraordinarily unlikely, not just because of the, the numbers right now, but of course, the political overhead. But... I would have a bit more faith in, in, in Boris and the Tories, Michael, if they said, look, January, if, if we hit certain benchmarks or February, we hit certain benchmarks, these are the steps we'll be taking. What, what's called by the Bank of England? Forward guidance. Of course, we have forward guidance when it comes to what will monetary policy be if we hit certain levels of unemployment, but we don't do that with public health. Probably tells you a little something about the priorities of politics uh, in neoliberal states like the UK, or the US. It is also worth saying, I, you know, I like to give the good news as well as the bad. Cases are rising, as Aaron said. We are seeing, though, both deaths and hospital admissions fall, which seems to be um, because of the, the booster campaign. The booster campaign seems to be very, very effective at targeting those people who are most likely to end up in hospital. And it, it is a booster gives you, I think, more immunity than you got after your, your second dose. So it, it, they really do work. Of course, whenever I am eligible for one, I will be going to get it. If you are, you should go and get yours. Before we go to our final story, I have a correction from Monday's show. In our discussion of the Kyle Rittenhouse case, my guest said the second man killed by Rittenhouse, so that was Anthony Huber, was shot in the back. In fact, he was shot in the chest. I also made a mistake. I said Rittenhouse travelled to Kenosha with an AR-15. He, in fact, picked up his AR-15 from a friend's house after he arrived in Kenosha. So he didn't travel to Kenosha with it. He picked it up in Kenosha. I should stress I don't think either of these corrections change the substance of the points made by either me or my guest on Monday's show. If you turn up to a protest with an AR-15 and shoot dead two unarmed people, that is not by any ordinary understanding of the term self-defense. I have heard, seen, seen a number of people argue otherwise, and I have to strongly, strongly disagree. We do, though, of course, strive for complete accuracy. So I am, of course, more than happy to set the record straight on those two points. Let's go to our final story. On this show, we like to make sure you never miss the most ridiculous interventions from our political representatives in Parliament. It's a chance to remind ourselves of the calibre of Britain's politicians, and they can be pretty damn funny. This Thursday, Tory MP Nick Fletcher provided us with one such howler. This was an intervention in a debate about International Men's Day. Everywhere, not at least within the cultural sphere, there seems to be a call from a tiny yet very vocal minority that every male character or good role model must have a female replacement. One only needs to look at the discussions surrounding who will play the next James Bond. And it's not just James Bond. In recent years we have seen Doctor Who, Ghostbusters, Luke Skywalker, The Equaliser, all replaced by women. And men are left with the craze and Tommy Shelby. Is there any wonder we are seeing so many young men committing crime? <laughs> Doctor Who's now played by a woman. Is there any wonder that men are committing so much crime? Is there any wonder? Aaron, we persuaded the reason we're seeing so much crime is because too many lead characters are, are now being played by women instead of men. Well, firstly, on the crime thing, Michael, we did a, I did a piece on this about did the police solve crime in the 1990s. There was more violent crime in this country than there is now. Fact. So the idea that role models somehow deteriorated from the 1990s, just not true. This man is apparently a religious conservative. He's a social conservative. 
he's driven by God. For me, if you're driven by God, it would mean you're a socialist, but people can disagree. That was the point of the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. People can disagree. That's fine on questions of religion. But it seems to me that, you know, we're a month away from the birth of Christ and he's saying that, oh, people don't have role models anymore like Luke Skywalker. The fuck is this guy? <laughs> you know, and, 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 and what I'm saying, you know, I'm asking myself, who the fuck is this guy? This is, this guy's winning, Michael. This guy is winning. This guy personifies the people that run this country. Trivial, generally stupid, talentless men, and some women too, but mostly men, who are now in the driving seat of British politics. And they're replete, not just in politics, not just in Westminster or in councils up and down the country, but also in our media. And it's this permanent sense of victimhood. He feels a victim, Michael. Why does he feel a victim? Even though he's a landlord with 10 properties, even though he's a member of parliament, even though he's had an incredibly successful career in the private sector, owned a business for, I think, two decades, uh, where he lives it's in Doncaster. Despite all that, he's a victim. Why? Because Doctor Who's now played by a woman. <laughs> I think, you know, you look at somebody like that and you think he's upset because he's, he's run out of things to be upset about. Life's pretty good. Just take a seat back, relax, and maybe as a Christian, care about people who are in housing poverty or aren't earning enough money to put food on the table. But of course, he can't do that, Michael, because he's a landlord. And it's not in his interests. It's in the Lord's Prayer, Michael. Let me get all uh, gospel. Let me get all, you know, Reverend Al Sharpton on you. It's in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Or as the Greek has it, Michael, the original Greek, release us from our debts as we release others from their debts to us. Now, Mr. Landlord here has got plenty of good stuff in his life, not much to complain about, so he's going to have to obsess with trivia. That is the future of the Conservative Party the next 10 to 20 years, and that's why we do Navarra Media, focus on substantive politics. I'm not saying we shouldn't have covered the story, Michael. I'm very happy we did. It's brought a <laughs> smile to my face. And, you know, we need an asshole, a wanker of the week, as uh, one memorable football show once called it in the 1990s. But, wow, you know, that's the mission of Navarra Media, Michael. Let's be like this in politics. Let's look at some of... I've, actually, I've just got one take from this because obviously this guy got completely rinsed on, on Twitter for this, both because of you know how, how ridiculous the connection was that he drew, but also this claim that because Doctor Who is now a woman and Star Wars, the, the lead character... I didn't even know this because I haven't watched the latest franchise. Apparently the new, the new lead character in Star Wars is no longer a man, it's a woman. It was Luke Skywalker, then it was Anakin Skywalker. I'm not even sure who it is now because I haven't watched any of them. But that's the context. The, the idea that there aren't any male role models in this country doesn't really stack up either. Marie Lecomte had what I thought was a good tweet. Sorry, I just can't let this go. How can Nick Fletcher go on about the lack of positive male role models mere months after the country united around the loveliest, most decent and inspirational football team? Really good point. They were excellent role models for men in this country. I suppose the reason why Nick Fletcher probably doesn't consider them as such is because they were anti-racist. They took the knee. They embodied progressive values. He, he would prefer, although did Doctor Who? I don't know. I don't watch it. I'm not going to be able to give you commentary on that either. Let's go to a letter which Nick Fletcher posted on Twitter to set the record straight. He was obviously a little bit upset by all the people who were rinsing him. Let's go to the first part of that letter. He says, I was pleased to speak at the International Men's Day debate today, especially as it gave me a chance to raise several points that are often a little overlooked within political discourse. These points namely touched upon poor academic attainment of boys in schools and a lack of positive role models for many struggling young males in society. Naturally, as is often the case, my rather nuanced point that there are increased... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Try that again. Naturally, as is often the case, my rather nuanced point that there are increasingly fewer positive male role models for young boys was almost immediately misconstrued. My point was, in fact, a straightforward one and in no way linked Doctor Who being a female to crime being committed by men. So he then goes on. He really wants to emphasize this point. So later in the letter, he goes on to repeat that point. So he says, as has been alleged rather lazily by several individuals, I did not link a Doctor Who being female to crime being committed by men. In fact, I was making a statement that boys and young men also need positive role models within the media just as women do. Now, the problem with these protestations from 
Mr. Fletcher, sort of begging us to, to look for the nuance in his argument, is that videos don't lie. He did connect Doctor Who being a female to, to crime. So in case you're, you're doubting your memory, in case you hallucinated what you just saw, let's take another look at that video. Everywhere, not at least within the cultural sphere, there seems to be a call from a tiny yet very vocal minority that every male character or good role model must have a female replacement. One only needs to look at the discussions surrounding who will play the next James Bond. And it's not just James Bond. In recent years, we have seen Doctor Who, Ghostbusters, Luke Skywalker, The Equalizer, all replaced by women. And men are left with the craze and Tommy Shelby. Is there any wonder we are seeing so many young men committing crime? On any definition, on any interpretation of that speech, he is very much linking Doctor Who being a woman to men committing crime. Aaron, where do they find these people? <laughs> and why did this guy think that he could just post a letter on Twitter denying what he said in a video, which is also on Twitter? Like, who's advising this guy? How's this guy an MP? <laughs> <laughs> when when was James Bond a role model for anybody? You know, when he's patriotic, a bit of a misogynist, you know. When were the Ghostbusters role models? I don't get it. Like, they literally <laughs> live in a fictitious universe where they go around catching ghosts. <laughs> Who the fuck is this guy? Excuse my French. I, don't, I'm not, I honestly have never heard anything like it. Who has ever said that the Ghostbusters, Bill Murray and the Ghostbusters are a fantastic <laughs> role model? Son? Why can't you be more like him? <laughs> Have you ever heard that? <laughs> Bill Egon, Murray and Ghostbusters made real... me who I am today, Aaron. Egon and the Ghostbusters was a real nerd. You know, he took his vitamins. He really knuckled down at school. He got a great job in a startup in a field that nobody was even, <laughs> even who existed, which was catching ghosts. Why can't you be more like him? 650 people are in our parliament running this country, this guy, and the way he's talking, by the way, you think the, the content of what he's saying and how he's saying, you think, who the fuck is this guy? There's probably 63 million people, including children and infants who can't yet speak, who are probably better placed to govern this country than, no, I'm being serious, than yeah. Nick Fletcher. This is deep fake. This is a simulation. It, with the name, it doesn't sound real. Well, he's not very intelligent, but actually maybe he is sort of like the proof of his argument because... Even though he's an idiot, there were so many male role models when he was younger in Ghostbusters, Luke Skywalker, you know, the, the Goonies. Who was your male idol from pop culture, Aaron? It was the cartoon plumber who, who always ate pizza. By the way, that's just as realistic a role model as fucking Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> or Sonic the Hedgehog. All right, let's wrap it up there. Do more of these speeches, Tory MPs. Because we do, we do like to talk about them at the end of our show. So if, you, if you've got anything on your mind, if you're a new Tory MP, go stand in a debate in Parliament. Stand up and say what's on your mind because we do really appreciate it. Aaron, any final comments this evening? I'm a Nick Fletcher truther. He doesn't exist. These are the birth pangs of the metaverse. He's not real. <laughs> Perfect. Um, Aaron Bastani, pleasure as always to be joined by you on a Friday evening. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Let's wrap up you've been watching tisky sour on navarra media we back on monday of course at 7 p.m for now good night this broadcast is brought to you by navarra media go to navaramedia.com support